0: Good morning, church. Welcome to Advent at the Austin Stone, the season where all suburban dads begin to dress like lumberjacks um, and where we get to celebrate the arrival of our king. I am known to some of my friends as something of an Ebenezer Scrooge at this time of year. I'm, I'm certainly much better since I've had a couple of kids, as it's tough to be a curmudgeon in the presence of my wide-eyed seven-year-old daughter, Katie, um, but this still isn't my super-duper favorite season, right? I don't love Christmas food. If we wouldn't eat it throughout the rest of the year, why would we eat it now? I'm not a huge fan of Christmas music, pa ra pum pum right? I find Christmas decorations and the whole thing that goes with it quite stressful and cluttered. I like my house to look like an Ikea catalog, right? i right, kind of Scandinavian in its simplicity, and then we start throwing tinsel all over the place, and it starts to bring out my angst and my anxiety. Why would I be such a grump about this, right? Am I just a cynical, grumposaurus Gen Xer? Um, yes, uh, but why would this particular issue uh, do this uh, to me? Well, well, hear me clearly. I don't actually think that we make too much of the season of Advent, but too little, I actually love the notion of Advent, the message of Christmas that, that, that underpins it, right? It's supposed to be a season of waiting, designed to reflect the 400 years of silence before Christ's arrival. It's supposed to be a season that diminishes our anxiety and our stress. I think we just keep adding things to it that makes our anxiety and our stress worse. And so we take a season that's supposed to be like a soothing balm for our souls, Right? And then we make it full of anxiety. Right Will I buy the right gift? Will I be able to afford the right gift? Will I be able to pay off my credit card by this time next year so that I can afford the the right gift again, right? To make up for the dumb gift that I bought last year? Turns out my wife didn't want an iron. like I don't know how these uh, things play out right but but it makes me anxious, right? Now you're going to have family around that's supposed to be a soothing bomb, but then they're, they're family, and they're going to do what family does, right and that's going to make you stressed and anxious. It's supposed to be about simple. Simplifying your life, and now you've got plastic faced demon elves on shelves in various places um, in your house, making you more stressed out. I just think we put cheap trinkets in the way of much of the remarkable message of Christmas. I think we take what could be wonderful imagery and ritual that is intended to remind us of Christ and his work in the world, and we morph it into something that actually ends up standing in the way of the message of Christ, and his work in the world. Now listen, hear me clearly, right? This doesn't mean you need to be just a jerk for Jesus, a grump who rejects all of the merriment of the season. Uh, There is so much joy in tradition, right? Uh, There's so much joy to be had in ritual and togetherness. Enjoy it, right? But I want to try and make sure that you don't miss what we're actually looking at, what we're beholding at this time of year, what are we looking at? Well, let's start in Matthew one, right? And you're like, did you guys just finish, Matthew? We're gonna start again. Um, just give it another run through, see if we missed anything, right? But the, the context here in Matthew one is that what, what, it, what we're gonna read together today comes immediately after two remarkable things that, that take place in Matthew's recording. First is the genealogies of Jesus, which I know many of us just blaze through, but they're remarkable, right? We expect the Savior of the world, the Son of God, to have an impressive bloodline at the least. We expect it to be a who's who of pomp and ceremony, a hall of fame of piety and prestige. And instead, it feels like an ensemble of embarrassment (laughs) that people would rather want hidden. They are fraudsters and adulterers and murderers in there, there are sinners and those who have been deeply sinned against. Why would God want all of that included in the bloodline of his son? It shows, friends, that Jesus came to join us in the midst of the complications of everyday people and their families. He waded right into the middle of the mess. It shows that he loves to redeem our really messy stories, kinda like the ones we're currently living, right? You see, the family tree that Jesus comes from shows us the kind of messy people that Jesus comes for, and that is really good news if you're a kind of struggling, messed up individual like I am. The second thing that happens in Matthew 1 is the announcement of the Messiah's arrival is made to a betrothed or a contractually engaged young woman named Mary, who's probably in her late teens, right? It's so earthy, it's so gritty, it's so human and vulnerable that Jesus would choose to enter into the world through such a humble and tenuous relationship. Imagine the fear of Mary in a culture based on honor and shame, and where many are going to presume that she carries shame with her. Imagine the anguish of Joseph. Hearing that, he just, just think the humanness of this, right? You engage to a girl, everything's going swimmingly, you've, you've picked out a date, it's wonderful. And then you hear that your young fiance is pregnant. And you're trying your best to believe her that no other man had anything to do with it, right? Just imagine the humanness of that. And then verse 21, this is the angel speaking to Joseph. He, he does something amazing. He says he's determined to not put her to shame. And so in that culture, you would expose adultery, and the consequence of that would have been public stoning, right? John 8, we see that taking place. But, but Joseph is an honorable man. He's a dignified man. He cares for Mary. He cares about her well-being. He feels betrayed, but he says, I don't want to put her to shame. I don't want to do that, so I'm going to divorce her quietly. I'm going to give her an option at a future life. What a, what a godly man Joseph is in this moment. Verse 21, she will bear a son. This is the angel speaking to Joseph. Joseph. And you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. There's so much Old Testament messianic promise happening in there, right? Uh, the, the one Yeshua will be the one who saves his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This was all foreknown. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. What Mary saying to you is true. And she'll bear a son. And they shall call him. This will be his heavenly title, in a way, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Our friends, so much going on here. There's angelic confirmation of a miraculous conception, which is essential to our understanding of who Christ is. Um, And that's just one clue. As if that isn't enough, that this child, this child, is no ordinary baby. What does it say that this child will do? He will save his people from their sins. It is the fulfillment of long standing and long awaited prophecy, and the people will call him Emmanuel. God with us. A title that, quite frankly, changes everything. Three words that alter the world inexorably God with us. And that's all we're covering over the next three weeks. Those three words. What does it mean today that Jesus is God? Next week, what does it mean that Jesus came to be with? Then we're gonna focus on his humanity. And then on Christmas Eve, what does it mean that Jesus came to be that God came to be with people like us? <laughs> Who are the kind of people that he comes to save? And so today we're gonna to look at God. Because we believe that this baby was God incarnate. Now just stop for a second, you're like, "Mm mm-hmm, true. That's bananas, right? Christians believe crazy stuff. Have you thought about this for a second? In the clutter of our house, that looks like Santa threw up in my living room, right? Uh, my daughter has this little Fisher-Price nativity scene. It's just one of the many things that my cats get to play with. I have cats, because I love my wife. Um, And it's just one of the things that they get to mess around every night, right? And it's this little Fisher-Price nativity scene that my daughter Katie presses the star on every night, and it plays one of the dumbest songs ever, Away in a Manger. Little Lord Jesus, no crying he made. That's stupid, he cried, right? Okay, um, and so, and why is there someone playing? He's probably crying because there's someone playing their drum for him, and he's trying to sleep, right? Okay, so, not a big fan of the music, right? don't know if I mentioned that. And she plays that every night. And then every night, I go to bed, I straighten everything out, and I turn these little Fisher-Price characters where they're supposed to be, and there's the sheep and the donkey and the three wise men, right? And I smile to myself, because there in the middle of the scene is a little plastic, baby lying in this tiny manger it's pathetic and we believe that's the king of the world that's an unbelievable claim that God God himself came to save the world and that he arrives in the form of an infant never ceases to amaze me that Jesus came into the world as a baby is there anything in the world as vulnerable or as remarkable as a human baby I spend a lot of time in the African bush, and compared to other species, human babies are kind of pathetic. Have you noticed this? A giraffe has to be able to run from day one, otherwise he's an entree, right? Like that's just the the, the way that it works. And so a baby giraffe gets dropped from a dizzying height and the mother's like, figure it out, buddy, because I can hear the growls, right? We gotta get out of here. Babies, human babies, just lie around for like a year. And then people get together and go like, oh, he rolled over. Like, rolled over? Like, if we were just out there in the wild trying to survive, I mean, it would just be like a buffet line, right? For every carnivore, just follow the humans. Their babies just lie around, right? It's just, it's, a, it's an unbelievable Thing Our babies are cute, but they're kind of weak, right? They depend on someone else to do absolutely everything for them. They're so vulnerable and so fragile. And this picture is so beautiful that Jesus, the divine one, doesn't bypass any of that in his humanity. He doesn't decide to bypass infancy or being a toddler or being an adolescent He doesn't just appear as someone who's got his life all together, right? He doesn't emerge from the womb with a full set of teeth, though that would look awesome, um, and an advanced Hebrew vocabulary. You know what the scriptures tell us? That he has to learn, that he grows in wisdom and understanding like any other young boy. That means the little Lord Jesus crying he makes. He cries and sleeps and needs swaddling and comfort and nursing and cuddles from his teenage mum. Oh, the humility of our King Jesus. I can't get enough of it. It encourages me so much, and I can't wait to hear more about it in the sermon next week. But that isn't the only element of his identity at play, right? We can then go, oh, cute Jesus, that's great. He came to be with us in the mess, right? And we, we, we think that what we ultimately need is just empathy, but we need a collision of empathy and sovereignty. We don't just need someone who can go like, oh, I know how you feel. He can do that, that's amazing. Gonna look at that next week. We need someone who says, I know how you feel and I know how to fix it, right? I know how to take you from what you feel into something better, into a life of abundance. He isn't just with us, although that is phenomenal. He is God with us. This infant is God incarnate and if we're gonna have a season full of hope, and joy and peace this Advent, then we must take time to remember that and to examine that afresh. Look at me, uh, look with me, not at me, don't look at me, that's weird. Look with me um, uh, at the first chapter of John's gospel, right? Now, now what you're going to hear if you're uh, cynical about the claims of Christ, you, you've agreed so far when you go, like, this is a crazy claim that the baby is God. And if you agree with that, you go like, and I don't believe it, right? Or I'm struggling to believe it. One of the counter narratives you'll hear is that this wasn't even believed for the first three centuries of the church, right? That we added the divine status of Jesus uh, later on, that he was just some kind of like wise guru that we've called God, um, but no one believed that in the early church. Well, first chapter of John's gospel starts like this. In the beginning. Where have we heard that before? Genesis 1, right? The story of creation. And how does that go? In the beginning, God, right? And that's the story of creation. John now very deliberately is telling the story of recreation. God is remaking the world through his son. And he goes, in the beginning was the word. Now, now, now that word in the original language is the divine word, the breath of God, the ultimate source of wisdom and authority. He was there in the beginning, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, listen, this, uh, this is what John thinks of his friend, Jesus Christ. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and this life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's just so beautiful, this recreation story. But John is making some truly astonishing claims of Jesus. And remember, this is a man writing in the first century, a man who had spent time with Jesus, who had lived with him. Have you ever noticed how disappointing most people are when you live with them. (laughs) You notice this? Right? You think like, they seem nice. Then they become your roommate or your spouse. And then you go, they don't seem nice, right? They do all these crazy things. They sin in so many different ways. They've got so many flaws to their personality and their cleaning routines and all of these things. You see them fail, right? John lived with Jesus, watched him die, saw him resurrected. And his only conclusion was that Jesus is the divine word, the very truth of God in human form. He says things of him that can only be said of God. He says he's eternal. He was there in the beginning, (laughs) already existing in the divine Godhead when nothing and no one else existed. He made the world. Nothing was made except by his say-so. In him was life. He is the very light of man and not even darkness will be able to overcome. These things can only be said of the God of the universe, and John says that they are true of Jesus Christ, the word. He goes on in verse 9, let me go quickly. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. That's this divine collision. It's amazing. He steps into the creation that he made, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, the ones that he fashioned, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, that's the offer of hope this Christmas. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. He's the one who can do the saving, right? Look at those collision points. This God doesn't stay away from us. He doesn't wait for us to figure out a way uh, to him through an obedient or enlightened life. He doesn't manifest through a guru or a prophet who opens up a way to a divine path, but rather the divine comes to us to live the life we couldn't live and then offers us the opportunity, us as rebels and strugglers, to become adopted as children of God. He becomes, listen, what we are so that we might become as he is, a child. Beloved by God the Father, not through any effort of our own, but solely because of the grace of God. Verse 14 then says, We're going to focus on this next week, so I'm not going to teach from this, but, and the Word, the Word, this divine one, God, became flesh. Oh my goodness. And dwelt, tabernacled, inhabited among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. We'll focus on this verse next week, but again, what's ascribed to him here? Glory. Something that the Old Testament had warned throughout millennia can only be ascribed to God alone. God doesn't share glory with another, and yet it is found in the person of the incarnated Jesus Christ. What a thought. And it isn't just John, friends, right? You're like, well, You know, John was old when he wrote this and um, uh, maybe he he wasn't thinking straight. The Messiah is long awaited and predicted over thousands of years in the Old Testament and then beautifully fulfilled in Christ. And then just look with me quickly at an example of how the early church described him. Let's go 30 years, at least 30 years earlier than John's letter, right? Why am I doing this? Uh, If you're a believer, I I want these words to fuel your courage. God is with us, right? Right? If you're not a believer this morning, I'm so very glad that you're here, but consider this claim of who this infant was, who this Jesus of Nazareth actually is. He's not just one amongst many. He stands alone. He stands apart, right? Now this is from Colossians chapter one. This is early first century, right? We're talking 50s, right? Um, uh, within you know, a couple of decades of the life of Christ, with eyewitnesses of Jesus' life still very much present. And Paul tells us in Colossians 1, I love this text. He, Jesus, is the image, the imprint of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Friends, you can go to him. (laughs) He made it all. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You want your life to be coherent? You want your life to be congruent with truth? You want your life to make sense? Well, he holds all things together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, in everything, not in a section of your life, not in a couple of hours on a Sunday morning, but in everything, he might be preeminent. Why? For in him, in this infant, (laughs) all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's just note out for a second. Do you see the non-communicable attributes of God ascribed to Jesus Christ in this text? Eternality, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. All attributes that God alone holds, and yet they're present in the person of Jesus who comes into the world as an infant. I could show you more from the New Testament, but I don't have time. How much comfort (laughs) there is in remembering that Jesus didn't just join us in weakness, right? We all know we're weak, right? And you're going to hear next week that Jesus isn't ashamed of that weakness. He's prepared to join you in it, right? but he also rules and reigns in strength. So you can go to him in hope. In this Advent season, you don't have to be totally defeated because you can anchor your joy and your hope and your faith on something so powerful and so true, right? We must remember that even in Christ's humility, he maintained the glory of his divinity and he has it still today. And so now he doesn't just empathize with us in the middle of difficulties, which he can, but he's able to do something about the difficulties of life. He's able to forgive our many sins. He's able to rule over us with wisdom and kindness. And he's able to rule over our world and even the cosmos when it feels like everything's just gone to hell in a handbasket, right? So let me just do this with my remaining 10 minutes. Let me just speak to those in the room who don't believe in this Jesus, or those in the room who this Advent are struggling to believe in His power right now in their lives. We did an exercise with our staff team this week where we took these three words, God with us, and we just said, which of those attributes right? Which of those truths of Emmanuel? Are you struggling to believe this Advent? Let's pray for that, right? Are you struggling to believe that God would be with you, right? He feels distant, he feels far away. Are you struggling to believe that he could be with you, us, right? You feel too sinful, too rebellious, right? Why are you struggling to believe that he's God, that he's actually sovereignly ruling and reigning over situations that might be really, really hard in your life? Let's just press into that first one this morning. You're struggling to believe that the infant is God, that he has control, that he's worthy of your worship? Well friends, what I wanna do with my remaining few minutes is just look quickly at some of the ways Jesus spoke about himself. Not just identities that were given to him by the apostles, right? Because you might even still be cynical of that, although historically that's remarkable. This is a 2000 year old claim of eyewitnesses, it's astonishing. What did Jesus think about himself? Well undeniably I don't have time I'm just going to do eight this morning in 10 minutes right Jesus believed he was god with us in human form well where do i get that well firstly jesus believed he came from heaven right john 6:38 he says i've come down from heaven, That makes people shrug because they thought he came from Nazareth, right? Which they weren't persuaded anything good can come from there, right? So add your least favorite town, um, wherever that might be, and they'd be like, nothing good comes from there. Jesus is like, well, I didn't actually come from Nazareth. I came from heaven. Now listen, this is heresy, if it's not true. He's claiming pre-existence, which is a big deal. He's explicit about that in John 8, where he claims to have pre-existed Abraham right? They're like, "Uh, what is your skin routine? Because uh, you don't look like you were alive uh, before Abraham. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, right? I've I've been here from the beginning. Uh, I've always been. My friends, listen, other religious leaders claim to have seen heaven, but this claiming of coming from heaven to earth on a mission is unique to Christianity. Secondly, Jesus believed he was more than just a good man. We can't give him uh, a character that he doesn't himself believe. In Mark 10, uh, uh, a young man comes up to him and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I love Jesus' answer to him. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now there's a lot of banter. There's a lot of back and forth in this argument. Some people say, you see, Jesus doesn't think he's God, but he does because he then goes on to answer the question. And so he gives the guy a little wink. Hey, just make sure that when you call me good, you're calling me God, right? You get that. And the dude's like, yeah, I'm cool with that. He's like, all right, now to your question. And he gets to it. In John five, we're told that Jesus sought to, sorry, that the Jews sought to kill Jesus because he kept making himself equal with God. In Mark 14, the high priest asks him if he is the Christ. And he says, yes. And then he says something remarkable. I'm coming back seated at the right hand of the Father. And that's when they tear their robes, right? And they're like, what blasphemy? Third, Jesus wasn't just witness to perform miracles. He also claimed that he could work these miracles. He claimed that he could intervene in the laws of nature. (laughs) There's nearly 40 specific miracles, unique miracles of Jesus that are spoken of in the gospels. They make up nearly a third of Mark's gospel. In John 10, Jesus said that he performed miraculous signs to show that he and the Father were one. What happened that day in John 10, 38, 39? Everyone wants to kill him, not because of his miracles, but because he claimed he could do them because he was God. Fourth one, Jesus claimed to be without sin. (laughs) Now, this is big, because we want good people to say that they aren't all that good in order to prove their goodness, right? We say no one is perfect, right? And we say this and you're like, oh yeah, that's true, that's wise, I should tattoo that in Aramaic uh, uh, on the small of my back, right? No one is perfect. Uh, and we go like, that's an eternal truth, except Jesus would have disagreed with you. We you going, well, no one's perfect. He's like, well, except me, right? Uh, except me. Imagine you spoke with someone about how you struggled with something and they looked puzzled at you and then they said they have never made a mistake. Would you go like, man, this guy's great. He would go, psychopaths, all right? Like, please don't contact me ever again. But we read in the Gospels that Jesus is tempted and that he calls other people to repent of sin, but nowhere does he himself sin. He challenges his opponents in John 8 to find one sin he has ever committed. And they all go like, yeah, I've got another. Right? And his brothers are in that audience. <laughs> they they share a room with him, right? They're like, seriously, you've got to have something. They're like, it was always me. It was always me. Trust me, I'm in counseling. It was always me. Right? <laughs> Next one, big. Not only did he not sin, Jesus claimed that he could forgive sin. Again, a man makes this claim. You think that they're, they're, they're psychos. Luke 7:48, Jesus tells a woman her sins are forgiven. Mark 2, he tells the same to a lame man. I love that story in Mark 2 because the lame man's going like, not really why I'm here, but thanks. Um, uh, he's there for a healing. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. They're like, cool, awkward. Um, clearly no one prepped you, but Jesus is telling him, hey, no, I mean, what's harder for me? To say your sins are forgiven or to say, stand up, take your mat and walk, right? And the guy's like, let's try. And he's like, stand up, take your mat and walk. And he walks out. What's Jesus saying? I can forgive sin. I have the power to do it. This for me is one of the cruelest things in the world that Jesus could have said to people who are desperately seeking absolution, unless it's true that he could grant it. Next one, Jesus believed that people should pray to him. <laughs> Jesus claimed that his name was the key to powerful prayer. In John 14, he says that they can ask the Father anything through Jesus and he would do it. Again, just put this on like human terms. You meet a guy, Derek. Right? And Derek goes, you know what the key to, to God hearing your prayers are? You should say in Derek's name. And then you'll get everything, right? You'll be like, oh, thank you, Derek. Um, uh, we've got a counseling center, right? You should talk to someone. Jesus says this stuff. Why? He knows who he is. He knows who he is. Next one, Jesus believed he would judge the entire world. He says this in John 5, 24 to 27. I'm coming back, I'm gonna gonna be the judge, and I'm gonna judge everybody. Next one, Jesus believed he was the only source of salvation. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Friends, what do we see as a massive value today? Width of truth options, right? That's what we see, relativity. Absolute tolerance is the highest value. Jesus doesn't display any of those. He never says, but that's just my way. Feel free to find another one. There's many, right? He says, no, there's one way. There's one way, and you go, how do you know that? He goes, well, I'm also the truth. So I'm the definition of, of telling the truth, and so I can't tell you a lie, and I tell you the truth now. I am the way, and the truth. And life, you want life? I'm that, too. Next one, when are Jesus believed that all the scriptures were about him. <laughs> He hosts Bible studies. In John five thirty nine. he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you f- refuse to come to me that you may have life. Friends, just listen to this. Let me just awaken your faith this morning. There are at least 60 major messianic Old Testament prophecies fulfilled specifically and uniquely by Jesus Christ, including things that he would have no control over, like the place of his birth, like his childhood exile, right? I was doing some research on this a little while ago and someone called Peter Stoner, who has the coolest name ever, right? He did the, the, the maths on this and the numbers, uh, math, sorry, Americans, math. Um, we add an S in the rest of the world. I don't know why, I'm sorry, All right? Um, uh, and the numbers just get way too big. He calculated the probability, now remember Jesus fulfilled 60 of these. He calculated the probability of one man fulfilling eight Old Testament prophecies and he found it to be a number that is one in 10 to the 17th, power. You know what that is? One in a quadrillion. The chance of one man fulfilling over 40 is one in 10 to the 157th power. Let me give you an image. It's like covering the continental United States in quarters and asking someone to go through them and to pick up the right one. (laughs) The man is God. Lastly, Jesus believed that he had authority over everything, over everything in heaven and on earth. Matthew 21, he says, go. Well, who are you to tell me to go, right? Well, I have all authority in heaven and in earth, right? He claims to be the boss of the universe. The question is, is he? What I'm trying to do here is to drive you off the fence when it comes to Jesus, The one posture that makes no sense before our king is passivity or indifference or even, listen, some of you have faith, partial allegiance in an arrangement of convenience and comfort. It makes no sense if this man is God. The only response is worship with your whole life. Clive Staples Lewis summed it up perfectly when he said this, and I know if you've grown up in church, you know this quote better than I do, right? But Lewis said this, and his profound. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, He did not intend to. Lewis goes further in this quote. This this next part isn't quoted as often, but I love it. He says, we may note in passing that he was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. (laughs) He He produced mainly three effects, hatred, terror, adoration. There was no trace of people expressing mild approval. Friends, are you expressing mild approval (laughs) this Christmas? Too busy to just stop and adore and worship and repent and bow down and enjoy? Jesus is God with us. What are you doing with him today? Has your level of trust, your adoration, your obedience, your peace? If he is who he says he is, then he's got a handle on all the difficulties you're experiencing. If he is who he says he is, then he has the power and authority to call for your obedience. If he is who he says he is, then he's able to attain and protect your salvation. If he is who he says he is, then he's worthy of your whole life as worship. Oh, the fullness of God in helpless babe. The star maker swaddled looking up at the stars that he made, the holder of the universe being held and cared for by a terrified teenage mum, the creation speaker crying in hunger as an infant, the world maker arriving in a town too small to accommodate his presence, the king of kings born to a vulnerable family in relative poverty and obscurity and vulnerability. Why? He loves you. He loves you. And he came to get you. Emmanuel, God with us. Adore him today. Father God, thank you so much for your Word. I pray that it would have its effect, that we wouldn't just gloss over it as another Sunday, just as part of a Christmas routine, that the truths wouldn't feel too familiar, but that they would explode with new resonance and power today. Father, I pray for those in the room who don't believe in Jesus. I pray that they would doubt their doubts today. That they would start to think, I really have to figure out who this Jesus of Nazareth was. Friends, if that's you, at the end of the service today, or people down the front in all of our congregations, just go speak to them. Just ask them, tell me about this Jesus. They'd love to do that. Father, for the many of us who are trying to accommodate him, trying to live a compartmentalized life where he's part of our lives but isn't adored and worshiped and obeyed. Just reveal our folly today in love and in mercy and in grace. Help us to adore and to worship rightly. Lord, for those living in suffering or those living in shame, help us to look today to the story of that infant stepping into the world, stepping into suffering, stepping into a world of shame and overcoming it on our behalf. I pray that we trust him and adore him today. It's in Jesus' name we pray.